The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So tonight's week five. We have six, seven, and eight left after tonight. And uh, so tonight and a little bit next week, we'll talk, continue to talk, bring our attention to the drawbacks of sensuality. We'll have small groups next week, and you can continue to share your authentic, direct, immediate experiences of the reality of sense experience. And now, as opposed to the beginning weeks, we were really trying to have an honest and clear connection with the gratification. What is the experience of gratification? Now, we're not stopping that because the Seeing the experience of danger is right there with the experience of gratification. It's right there with the mind's misunderstanding the experience of gratification. And so now we're going to look at some of the Buddhist tonight and a little bit next week, look at the Buddhist teachings on the drawbacks. So I want to read a few things from the discourses um, because I think it will be helpful. But feel free if there are some confusion or questions that you have. We all sort of uh, feel free to bring up the questions that you have. We all know the, the basic answer that the danger in sense experience isn't in the sense in a direct sense, it isn't the sense experience itself. It's the attachment the mind has to pleasant experience, or the mind, the attachment, the clinging, the grasping that the mind has. And uh, that grasping comes out of wrong view. And I mentioned this, we've talked about this in different ways uh, over the weeks, but there's some basic wrong view that the world of sensuality, the world of sense experience, is here to give us something that we can actually take. Right? And uh, what we want to... That's why we want to examine gratification because it's something, but it doesn't actually provide the ground, doesn't really take care of us in the way we think it should. And that's like that hunger that never is appeased. We're hungry, right? You might be hungry for some entertainment when you get home tonight or hungry for some human contact some affection or some nice, pleasant interaction with another human being or a four-legged being. You might be hungry for recognition and power in your life, like you don't feel like you don't have power. And so we seek out, we, we seek a way to appease that hunger. And some of us then do appease that hunger but does the, the question is, does the hunger go away? Maybe. Maybe it goes away in that particular place, but then re-arises in some other place in our life. And there's some really provocative images. I think I shared this sutta with you, and I hope I didn't read it, but if, if you hear me repeating things I've already read, let me know. I didn't take good notes at the end of the program last week to know what I did and didn't read to the group. Um, so the Buddha's talking, and he gives us a set of images about um, what it's like, what sensuality is like. He's, it's just his way of talking about the dangers of sensuality. In one, Im- one image, suppose a dog overcome with weakness and hunger were, were to come across a slaughterhouse And there a dexterous butcher were to fling the dog a chain of bones, thoroughly scraped without any flesh, smeared with blood. What do you think? Would the dog gnawing on that chain of bones, thoroughly scraped without any flesh, smeared with blood, appease its weakness and hunger? And the monastics there respond, No, venerable sir. The Buddha asks, And why is that? And they answer, because the chain of bones is thoroughly scraped without any flesh, smeared with blood, 
the dog would get nothing but its share of weariness and vexation. And then the Buddha says, in the same way, householder, I guess they're not monastics, um, so lay folks that the Buddha's teaching now, in the same way, a disciple of the noble ones, considering this point, so somebody who's heard these teachings, considering this point, the blessed one has compared sensuality to a chain of bones of much stress, much despair, and greater drawbacks. Seeing this with right discernment as it actually is, then avoiding the equanimity coming from multiplicity, I'll explain this in a minute, then avoiding the equanimity coming from multiplicity, dependent on multiplicity, one depends on the equanimity coming from singleness, dependent on singleness, where sustenance and clinging for the baits of the world ceases without trace. So that's sort of an, and there's a number uh, number of other images that I'm going to bring up. So I didn't talk about this last week, did I? The chain of bones. So that's just, a, so when you're living your life immersed in sensuality, because we don't have any choice, it doesn't, you know, going to a cave is no less a sensual experience than living in the suburbs with a big house and nice this and nice that. So we are central beings. This is a central realm. And the Buddha, as I mentioned, I think last week in the Dhamma Chakra Sutta, the opening talk, you know, he's very clear that thinking that we can reject the needs of the body, reject sensuality as an end in itself is misguided. It It just makes the mind tight to think, to be afraid of, having nice food or to be afraid of having a comfortable bed. So we don't want to be dependent and we don't want to be afraid of sensuality. So he has this image of a chain of bones like just to kind of help us, like that particular angle to notice that the hunger isn't appeased. So whatever sense experience you get, does it really remove the hunger from the heart, from the mind. Whatever you do, you have a good sleep tonight in your comfortable, relatively safe place. Really let it in, right? Because you've been practicing being intimate with gratification. So whatever sleepiness you have, you're gratifying it. You're really taking that in. But does that rest take away the need for rest? Well, temporarily. And then it comes back. And then this part, and he repeats this uh, last paragraph with each of these analogies, seeing this with right discernment as it actually is, then avoiding the equanimity coming from multiplicity. So equanimity happens two ways. You give me everything I want, and like I've been saying, you have to keep giving me everything I want. Right? Then all of that multiplicity of getting what I want, I have a certain amount of equanimity keep the temperature at the temperature I want, give me the food I want, first salty, then sweet, then something to drink, and entertainments and other sense desires that I have, then as long as the world, my life circumstances, is meeting my needs exactly right, then I have equanimity based on multiplicity. Now, there's a equanimity based on singleness. And it, it sort of relates, generally in the tradition, they say it relates to the fourth jhana, this deep state of concentration or this deep unification of the mind. But the way to think of it in more ordinary terms, because it's a pretty refined state of concentration, state of unification, is just the mind is so retreated from its habits of needing, trying to feed off of sense experience, it's so retreated. And the way you do it in concentration is the attention, you know, probably in part for sure, because of evolution, like to survive, the awareness goes out through the sense gates into the what we call the external world, right? 
So, but you can withdraw the awareness from seeing and hearing and feeling the body. It's still there, but you're not paying attention. You can train your mind not to pay attention to the five physical senses, right? It's not like the eye or the ear stops working or the tongue and the nose stops working or the neurons at the, at the skin stop being sensitive to touch, but you just choose not to pay attention. Just like when you're deeply enthralled in a novel, Somebody can walk in the room and you don't hear them. You don't see them. But it's not that your eyes and ears aren't working. You're just not attending to that. So this is what deeper states of samatha, the kind of concentration practices, you've trained your mind. Some people just are naturally better at this than others. But you've trained the attention not to pay attention to the five physical senses. And then that feels, that seclusion feels good. And then because it feels good, then the mind takes that up as the object of awareness. That inner pleasure of seclusion itself becomes the object of meditation. And it, in the tradition, we call it a nimitta. The mind represents to itself seclusion or the uh, relative you know, stability of the mind because it's not being, it's not having to react to sights and sounds and smells and tastes and touches and its immediate thoughts about those sense experiences because the mind's not paying attention to those sense gates. So that's seclusion and then it holds that experience and that experience of seclusion is relatively stable, like sights come and go, sounds come and go, touches are always changing. But when the mind is secluded, not paying attention, and the peace of that seclusion, that's a little bit more stable of a experience. And the mind retreats and retreats and retreats. And that, that retreating, then, the mind is getting a taste of what it's like to not... It's sort of considered the most refined sense experience. Withdrawing from sensitivity is the most refined uh, experience in the sense realm, right? So, and that's, that sort of is, uh, comes to culmination in what in Buddhism is called the fourth jhana, which is a stage of meditation, of quietness in the mind. And so, seeing this with right discernment as it actually is then avoiding the equanimity coming from multiplicity, getting what you want at just the right pace, just the right timing. Dependent on multiplicity, one develops the equanimity coming from singleness, dependent on singleness, where sustenance and clinging for the baits of the world ceases without trace. Because even in a deeper state of concentration, desire goes away. That's actually the very technical definition of the fourth jhana is the mind is so withdrawn from sense experience that it's no longer operating in terms of pleasant and unpleasant. So it gets a little freedom from the basic frame of a central being, which is everything is seen in terms of pleasant and unpleasant. It's like the, the grid through which everything, every sense experience is evaluated. Now the mind is so withdrawn that it has the peace of not having to evaluate things in terms of pleasure and unpleasant, pleasant and unpleasant. Now let me give you some of these other similes that he uses because I think it, it helps us understand how we should look at the drawbacks of sensuality. So like bones that have been really cleanly scraped by a very dexterous butcher, so there's really nothing sat- ultimately satisfying in chewing the bones. But out of ignorance, the dog thinks, well, maybe if I just keep gnawing on this bone, I'll get something. And then next is uh, the image of a hawk that happens to get a bit of meat. But there are all these other hawks or other birds competing, jostling. So it's, it has the food, but it's constantly being attacked and tormented by other beings that want to take the food, the chunk of meat, away from it. We've seen this, right? 
animals get something, a squirrel gets something, or one bird gets something. You see this a lot at the beach with seagulls. You know, people actually like that, you know, throw bread out. We, Wynn and I often go to the New, New Jersey shore when we're visiting her mom and uh, with her, with our nieces and nephews. And you see that. They just, they're really aggressive. It's really, uh, you know, a battle. Once you, it's not enough to get the food. You've got to hang on to it. And uh, this is also what we know with sensuality. It's like you might get to the top of the heap, but in a lot of the places in our lives, people are trying to knock us down. Celebrity culture is really about this, too. You see this a lot. You know, somebody's at the top of the heap, but how do they stay there? You know, and everybody else, or in politics. And then the next image is uh, holding a burning grass torch, but the wind is coming towards you. Right? So this is another image for what it's like to be in a central realm. We do grab things, but it tends to burn us. You know, uh, I don't know if I've mentioned this, but when and I recently, uh, one of the people where Wynn works was retiring and selling some of the furniture, so we bought some of the furniture. And we've uh, mostly lived with hand-me-downs. And these, are, I guess, are hand-me-downs now, but, but now it's nice hand-me-downs. <laughs> so it's like nice for, a nice piece of furniture. We have it in our living room. And uh, it's like even something, even when you get something nice, it's like I notice like every time I'm, we're moving something around, I want to be careful not to, to dent it, not to scratch the wood. It's like, uh, it's like, well, we'll never use the table. I mean, we've got a dining room table, and it's like, oh, you don't want to put this on or that on. And, and then you have to put placemats on so you don't scratch the table. And the placemats don't look as nice as the table. I mean, it's a little bit like having a grass torch and the breeze is blowing towards you. It's like, it's nice to have the light, but it's really problematic. Right? It's easy to get burnt. And then the next image is um, a pit of coals where somebody will grab you and drag you through the coals. Not exactly how this is a good image for living in a world of sensuality, but you know, who knows? I mean, it's, it's kind of like, I think, one of the ways um, that might make sense is, you know, when we really get addicted, so addicted that we're willing to do things that cause, that set emotion harm. Some of you here, I mentioned last week this too, you know, those of you who work in the prisons and relate often with inmates, realize how life could cycle into really difficult places because of choices we make around sensuality. And then the, the image the Buddha used is a dream. Well, you're in a really nice dream where everything's working out for you. It's just beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. And then you wake up. Right? It's like you had it. You thought it was. And this is like some of the joy of anticipation. Oh, it would be so nice. It would be so nice. And then we get what we want. And it's not, you know, it's, it never lives up to the, <laughs> I'm remembering a situation in my own life that I can't really share, but it was just like such a powerful example of anticipation and then disappointment. And uh, yeah, in, in one of those real places in life where we really expect happiness. And it's not uncommon Maybe some of you, you know, in relationships that you want you settle into kind of an established, committed relationship. It didn't sort of look like what you thought it was going to look like or a new home, a new job, whatever it might be. There's more. Yeah, so the dream is like the promise that's never kept. The other image the Buddha uses is like you've got great stuff, but you've borrowed all the nice stuff. You borrowed a nice car, nice clothes, nice electronic devices. And then uh, kind of going through the day, it feels good, but you keep running into the people you borrowed that stuff from, and they keep taking it back. 
right? And then the last one is uh, where um, you walk, you stumble upon a beautiful fruit tree where all the fruit is ripe, but it's high up there. So you think, well, I know how to climb a tree. I know how to get. I'll climb that tree. I'll get all the fruit, fill my pockets, you know, and I'll things will be great, right? So you're fortunate. You run into something that you like, and you figure out a way to get it. And then as you're getting the fruit, in this case, somebody comes around and says, oh, lots of good fruit in that tree. I don't know how to climb a tree, but I know how to chop a tree down. And so the second person chops the tree down, and you know the first person falls and breaks an arm or breaks a leg or is killed or whatever it might be. So that's another image we can use with sensuality, that there we are feeling clever only to sort of be set up because somebody else, you know, is taking advantage of the situation. They're pursuing sensuality like we were. It's just that their way of pursuing sensuality is causing us great harm. And this we know, right? How many of us have been betrayed in relationships, you know, because somebody maybe took advantage of us in one way or another, whether it was at work or in love or whatever it might be where that person got what they wanted. We thought we were going to get what we wanted, but you know that person got what they wanted and then pulled the rug out in one way or another. Teased us about a promotion, but then gave it to somebody else because that made sense to them, maybe even for central reasons. The Buddha ends this uh, discourse. Now, when the disciples of the wise ones, noble ones, have has when the disciple of the noble ones has arrived at this purity of equanimity and mindfulness, one recollects one's past lives, and then it goes into a very um, common passage just about how that equanimity with singleness, like having found the place where the mind's contentment, where the mind's equanimity isn't based on having what it wants, which is fragile, it's a fragile kind of equanimity, but it's based on the mind retreating from being a sensual being, seeking happiness through sense contact. Now the mind is relatively established or stable in a happiness that comes from renunciation. Right? And that is the mind that realizes nirvana or nibbana, the freedom that the Buddha pointed to. So the, we'll, get, we'll come back and spend a lot more time with um, how the Buddha describes the escape. And then he ends and he says, when the disciple of the noble ones has ha, when the disciple of the noble one has arrived at this purity of equanimity and mindfulness one enters and remains in the fermentation free awareness release that's ajantani saro's unique way of translating this fermentation free awareness release and discernment release having directly known and realized them for oneself right here right in the here and now it's to this extent, householder, that there is an all around in every way cutting off of one's affairs in the disciple in the discipline of the noble one. How to be in the world but not pushed around, not caught in the world. There's another teaching where the Buddha talks about the ten armies of Mara. Mara, some of you know. I mean in some Circles Mara's seen as this uh, deity. It's like a celestial being with a lot of power and uh, the sort of god of death. You know, you have to understand in the Buddhist system, deities or celestial beings or gods, they're like the cosmic bureaucrats. They have certain responsibilities. They exist for a long time. But they're trapped in the same way that human beings are trapped, animals are trapped, 
beings and hellish realms are trapped in these circles of samsara. You know, they're still living with wrong view, taking things personally. They're just, you know, they've got a better career than we do, more refined body than we do. And so Mara is this in some circles, but also Mara is seen as a personification of her own ignorance, the tendency to um, somehow be addicted or attached to these cycles of suffering. So this is one description of the ten armies of Mara. And this is translated by, or in Saida Upandita's book at least. Meditation can be seen as a war between wholesome and unwholesome mental states. On the unwholesome side, there are the forces of the kilesas, the torments of the mind, also known as the ten armies of Mara. In Pali, means, in Pali, Mara means killer. It's the personification of the force that kills virtue, kills existence. Mara's armies are poised to attack all yogis. They even try to overcome the Buddha on the night of his enlightenment. Here are the lines the Buddha addressed to Mara as recorded in the Sutta Nipata. Sensual pleasures are your first army. So the Buddha is talking to Mara now. He sees Mara. He understands Mara. Sensual pleasures are your first army. Discontent, your second, is called. Your third is hunger and thirst. Your fourth is called craving. Sloth and torpor are your fifth. The sixth is called fear. Your seventh is doubt, conceit, and ingratitude, or your eighth, gain, renown, honor, and whatever fame is falsely received, or the ninth. And whoever both extols oneself and disparages others has fallen victim to the tenth. This is your army, Mara, the striking force of darkness. And this is what Sayadu Pandita says about sense pleasures. And you can see, you know, of those ten, ar- ten members of the army of Mara, they're all related to how our minds relate and the kind of games and the kind of patterns our mind uses in our experience of sensuality. He says about sense pleasure, this first army, sense pleasure is the first army of Mara. Due to previous good actions in central and material realms, we find ourselves reborn again in this world, in a sense world or a central realm. Here, as in the other central spheres, beings are faced with a wide assortment of appealing sense objects, sweet sounds, sweet smells, rich smells, beautiful ideas, and other delightful objects touch our six sense doors. As a natural result of encountering these objects, Desire arises. Pleasant objects and desires are the two bases of sense pleasure. And they really define sense existence. So is it bad that we like pleasant sense experience? No, that's what happens in the sense realm. And in case you don't realize, there are higher realms. Like some of those angelic realms are considered sensual realms. Like the Dewas, the sort of celestial beings that are in those sense realms, they have every delight. You know, they have bodies that are eternally, almost eternally youthful. And, you know, with every pleasure known, that's what you have all day long, all night long. Every Beautiful music, beautiful foods, beautiful touches, everything just the way we like it. So... Sometimes it's like that for us, you know, when we go on vacation maybe or when things are just right. And uh, so it's, it's like in the conditioning of a mind in a sense realm to desire pleasant sense experience. So we, it isn't appropriate to hate ourselves or to feel that we're bad, but what is appropriate is to be curious, curious about how our minds are relating to sense pleasures. And that's what the whole course is. Get curious about gratification, about any danger. Not to assume because the Buddha says there's danger, but because the Buddha says there's danger, to be willing to be curious and check it out. Well, is there a danger? What is the danger? Is there an escape? Is there a way to be 
in a sensual realm without suffering because of it, without their being like escape from the danger, not being in danger just because I remain a central being. This short passage goes on. Our attachment... um, Yeah, so the last sentence in the first paragraph. Pleasant objects and desire are the two bases of sense pleasure. Our attachments to family, property, business, and friends also constitute the first army. Normally, for a sentient being, this army is very difficult to overcome. Some humans fight it by becoming monks or nuns, leaving behind their families and all all that they cling to. Yogis on retreat, right, lay people on retreat, leave behind their families and occupations temporarily in order to combat the force of attachment which ties us to the six kinds of sense objects. And this is true in a morning set. Right? It's our little mini retreat. And for those 45 minutes, that hour, that 10 minutes, or whatever you sit in the morning, you know, we are practicing not being a normal being in, the, in a sense realm, our mind, our heart governed by pleasure and aversion or pleasure and pain, reacting based on pleasure and pain, but we practice retreating from that with both with that concentration move that I mentioned earlier where we withdraw sensitivity from the sense gates and also with wisdom. That's just knee pain. That's just a memory about something bad that happened yesterday. Or that's just that anticipation of something good that might happen later today. So we practice not being confused by the sense pleasures and sense unpleasures, displeasures, that arise during the sit, right, with wisdom and by withdrawing. And generally, you know, the basic rhythm in meditation practice is initially the first part of the retreat, we usually emphasize the withdrawing, right? Even sitting in a quiet room is withdrawing some. Closing your eyes is withdrawing from sense experience. Sitting still is a way of withdrawing from sense experience. Not going there with your attention, right? No, no, honey, just be with the breath. No, no, honey, just be with the breath, right? So there's all kinds of ways that we withdraw. And to whatever degree we're able to do that, we get some benefit from being pushed around. I mean, imagine if instead, you know, we had three video screens with entertainments going and we were sipping our favorite beverage and chewing on something and being cuddling with someone in the way we like to cuddle and, you know, laughing at the cat videos that we're watching and all those sort of sense delights, it would be hard to do the practice as the Buddha instructs us to do, which is to realize, the, you know, to see clearly the experience of gratification, to see clearly the danger, and to see clearly the escape, like how to be free as a sense being, a sensual being, how to be free, how not to be oppressed, as a sensual being, how not to be entangled. A lot of people tell me sometimes, you know, in meetings and also in groups, maybe even tonight some of you will mention it, they're like, why do I kind of like being entangled? I like the, ri- the wild ride of being a sensual being and the delights and the torments and the, you know, not knowing how it's going to play out. And But the question is, is that really true? Because a lot of reason, a lot of where that comes from when we say, no, I don't mind the wild ride. I don't mind that I, you know, sometimes it's pleasant, sometimes it's unpleasant. You know, but what, what you can point out to the person who tells you that or to yourself when you're saying that is, well, maybe you've had a pretty privileged ride. That's one thing. And so your ups and downs maybe have been in this relatively narrow band and who knows the twists and turns that are in front of you. And, you know, it's not even just in this life. You know, in Buddhist cosmology, we open our mind that 
to the to the possibility that this mind, that the twists and turns, like the places of good fortune or misfortune, that there's no end to having, re, you know, really good fortune and having a lot of mostly pleasant central experiences, and then really misfortune, you know, like if you sort of want to just open your mind to buying, you know, the Buddhist mythology or the Buddhist cosmology, that being reborn as an animal or ending up in a hellish realm of one kind or another, or just even within this own life, things can go really bad. Divorce, job loss, living in a war zone, being in a political culture that we're in, or realizing that our Privilege is built on the suffering of other beings. So there's so many things that we can realize that disturb and can really turn around our relatively stable, pleasant experience in life. So we really want to uh, study these, but to, to understand that the study depends on some retreating from sensuality. We have to take some steps away. And the Buddha says, like, being a monk or nun is considered the most beneficial place, if you can handle it, to practice. Because in a in the traditional setting, the culture agrees to take care of you. Not give you, you know, perfect accommodations, but you know, you get a comfortable place to spend the night. You get food every day. You don't have to have a job. You don't need, you know, you live in a tropical environment where Buddhism arose, where you can sleep outside some of the time, or, you know, you don't need special equipment, special snow boots, or this or that. And uh, your life is basically simple. And, and, you know, it's interesting. One interesting way to think about it is like, obviously, in that model, where the nuns and the monks kind of have this unique opportunity to live a very reflective life. If you think of it, well, that's not fair. But if you think of the community as an organism, it's like it makes sense. Like the uh, cells in our gut that maybe, I don't know, I don't think they last very long, the cells on the lining of the gut. I forget if it's like a week or, and then they die in another same with like even skin. It keeps getting sloughed off. But they sacrifice, you know, these cells are happy, I guess. <laughs> Maybe that's just my interpretation. But to sort of sacrifice themselves for the benefit of the whole. And this symbiotic relationship between practitioners and people who can't practice, that, that was sort of the model. Now, I'm not saying that it's socially just. I'm just saying that's sort of the framework about how it works. But in our own lives, <clears throat> we have to sort of think of it that way, like whether we think of it in terms of our family circle or the wider culture circle or just within our own life, we want to give some of our life energy toward this deepest work of how, like, because if we just put all of our time, all of our life energy into pursuing sense pleasures, what do we end up with? But if we can sacrifice some of that time where we could be pursuing sense pleasures, right, to just ex examine the gratification, the danger, and the release, how one might be free or not dependent on sense pleasures, if we can use some of our life to do that, and of course, the easiest thing in the world is to keep postponing it. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I'll do that later. Like even in Indian culture that, you know, for many centuries mingled with the Dharma, with the Buddha's teachings, before it got wiped out um, back in like the 10th century, 12th century, somewhere in there. Um, <clears throat> there's this idea that arose that, yeah, probably the best thing to do is sort of you know, when you're young, be a student, yeah, and then after you sort of have a craft or a skill, a trade, then you work and you raise a family, and then when you're about 60, if you live that long, 
then you give away your inheritance, you give everything away, you give your house to your, one of your kids, and you become a sannyasin, or in the, sort of the Hindu tradition, you become a, a wandering ascetic. And you then take a look, you sort of practice being free in sensuality. And the Buddha really, like as a teacher at the time, growing up in that sort of culture, said, why wait till you're an old person? to do this practice, right? So then it slowly over time, you know, the younger the better. Why not as a young person devote your life to this pursuit? And the Buddha himself was pretty young when he started. So there's one more, a few more sentences here. Anytime you practice meditation, especially in a retreat, you leave behind a large number of pleasant things. Even with this narrowing, narrowing and range, though, you still find that some parts of your environment are more desirable than others. At this time, it is useful to recognize that you are dealing with Mara, the enemy of your freedom. So Gabe, you can remember this. Gabe's taken off with Evelyn, uh, who may not be here tonight, and Matt, for the last six weeks of the three-month retreat. They're leaving on Wednesday, I think, or Thursday, rather. And... uh, it's so interesting on longer retreats especially, but even weekend retreats, nine-day retreats, you'll see it in yourself and you can really observe it in others even better. It's like having a place you like to walk, having the place in the dining hall you like to eat your meal. You know, Whether you're someone who likes to be one of the first in line or for me it's like, oh, that was so, I was so averse to the sort of energy at the, being, you know, and I didn't want to be uncool and need to be early in line so I would always wait till most people were done going through the dining hall. And then I'd walk in, you know, not attached. But see, that's a sensual pleasure too. It's like the, the sensuality of having an idea of who I am, right, and how I handle things and how I present myself, the, the one who doesn't care if some of the food is gone. So it's like all these traps and like, all, all your equipment, you've got to find the right cushion in the right place in the hall where you sit and you know the right teacher to interview with. Like on the six-week retreat, there are five or six teachers. So you know, you're going to interview with some but not others. And should I tell them who I want to interview with? Or should I just trust that Buddha is looking out for me and I'll get the right one? Or you know, All these sort of weird trips in this world of sensuality. So you can think, yeah, I'll be on retreat, I'm leaving behind sensuality, sense experience, but it's just, it becomes more obvious, the little things, and the things you bring along. Like sometimes in my early long retreats, I'd bring like a certain number of packets of cocoa. It was like when all else failed, you know, like it was just too dismal to handle. I'd pull out one of the packets and I'd make some cocoa. And then it's like, if you really pay attention to that, it's just suffering. Knowing you have cocoa is suffering. Even drinking the cocoa is suffering because you know it's going to end. Like, this is the thing when your mind is really sensitive and wisdom is there. You really see these three things. Yeah, there is some gratification, but it ain't much. Right? The sweetness of cocoa isn't much. Even the nice meals that they serve. They are what they are. There is gratification. It's something, but it's not much. And the, and the dependence on it is real torture. So like, you really get clear that, yeah, there is gratification, but the endless dependence on the gratification, that's like exponentially bigger than any gratification we get from these sense pleasures. And, and the heart really starts to get interested in, is there really an escape from this endless stance of sensuality? Is there really an escape? That's what I tried to point to in the, in the meditation tonight, and you should continue to explore it at home. It's best if you take some of the time, like I said, to get into a retreated place where you have some distance from the torments of sensuality, right? And you're feeling some inner calm, inner stability, inner peace. And then really explore the very real unpleasantness of the mind being dependent, entangled in any kind of sense experience. Now often it will be 
physical, in terms of physical sensation, we have some opinion about some sense sensation that's arising, or some thought, right? And just the entanglement, see that as a a real danger, a real heaviness, and then reflect on the possibility of escape of not being entangled, not being dependent, the mind not being entangled or dependent in the way that it is. And for me, it's like uh, the image of a free faller, like whatever the mind is knowing moment by moment, I'm not directing my attention in this kind of practice. So whatever the mind knows, it's like, it says, honey, don't hold. Don't, you don't need anything from what you're thinking, what you're feeling, what you're knowing, what the mind is sensitive. I'm not trying to get anything from it. So it's just free to come and go. And so just kind of keeping that in mind, like non-dependence or being independent, not needing anything from the moment, not needing anything, so that the flow of the six sense gates, thought, sound, sight, sensation, it's like, can it be just a flow with no restriction to the flow? And then when there is restriction, then the mind goes, oh, this is the danger. And then when there's back more to a flow, things are just coming and going, less oppression in the heart, body, mind, then you notice, oh, this non-attachment is the escape. And then a little reverberation of attachment, a little entanglement. The mind's dependent, has an opinion about something, fixed in some way. Oh, this is the danger. When the mind is in a central realm, there is this tendency to get entangled with some sense experience, whether it's a thought, an emotion, a sound, a sensation, a sight, whatever it might be, there is this possibility. Is there an escape here? What's the escape? Well, we know it intellectually, not attachment. But you can't try to be not attached because that that's just playing the game again. Right? So it's like an, it's, this move is really an intuitive uh, trusting of non-attachment instead of trying to be non-attached. So we're going to fail at this a lot until we learn the lesson of like how to, like, it's just a deepening of the insight of the escape. So it's okay if you feel like you're floundering here, where you're getting pretty good at noticing the danger, like the actual crunch of whenever the mind's entangled, has an opinion, is fixed with some sense experience, right? And, and you feel the authentic desire, and it is a desire for escape, but not always finding it. You know, you might stumble upon it, but then you lose it again. I'll just end with the story. <laughs> I'm not sure how it fits, but it's a good story anyway. But uh, Carlos Castaneda wrote a number of books, as many of you know, uh, about this teacher. And there's some controversy of whether this was a real person or just a construction of Carlos Castaneda's mind. But nonetheless, the books have a lot of spiritual wisdom in them, at least in my mind they do. And, and actually, many of my teachers have also read and appreciated his books. But uh, one book, uh, Don Juan, his uh, teacher... Uh, it's a shaman teacher from Mexico, and tells Don Juan they're sitting on the porch out in the country somewhere in Mexico, and and uh, he's kind of a sorcerer, Don Juan, this shaman, and he says to him, I'm going to go to bed, but you need to find your power spot tonight, and if you don't, you're going to die. See ya. <laughs> he goes inside, goes to sleep, snoring away inside, and Carlos Castaneda He's always kind of the spiritual fall guy in a lot of his own stories. And, you know, he's desperate, of course, to sort of, and he's trying all the moves, you know, all the spiritual moves, okay, you know, listen, be still, you know, all the spiritual tricks. And he just, of course, because he's feeling desperate, nothing works. Just freaking out, freaking out, freaking out. Eventually he exhausts himself, trying so hard to intuit where his power spot is. And he just falls asleep at some point in the middle of the night. And then the, last, the next thing he knows, Don Juan is kicking him in the morning, saying, ah, see, you found your spot. 
<laughs> so I just say this because, you know, this, this experience of like getting somewhat calm in your sit and then just noticing in a more refined way how the mind gets tight, not big time attachments or big time struggles, but just like little clingings, little, you know, oh, that pain in the knee, if only that weren't there, you know, oh, that feeling in my spine, you know, maybe I'll, and and then you realize, oh, this is the danger of sensuality. This isn't me doing something to make my sit go. No, no, this is that primeval reality of sensuality that there's always a hunger. There's always those birds trying to get my chunk of meat. You know, all these analogies we talk, there's always a personal problem. If it isn't one thing, it's another. So sort of dealing with this nagging thought or dealing with this nagging sensation in my spine or, you know, wondering if I should leave early because I've got all these things I need to do. Maybe I should cut my sit short. Oh, this is the danger of sensuality. This is what the Buddha talked about. And then when the mind is clearly aware and intimate and in moments at least, no problem, well, maybe this is the escape. Let me really be intimate with the freedom, with the non-problem of sensuality that is arising in these moments so that I can, the mind can, the heart can really understand the escape. What is it? How is it that the mind is relating that there is no problem with sensuality right now? Is there actually a problem? I'm just not aware of it. Or is there actually no problem in this moment, right? So that's really how we sit. But there may be a lot of floundering, and that's okay. So I'll just end with this last passage, and then uh, maybe there's time for a few people to share. This is from uh, that uh, collection of teachings I sent out to everybody from uh, Penny Sorrow. It's in the book, um, Mind Like Fire Unbound. 40 cartloads of timber. This is chapter 3. And I sent out the whole chapter. And on one of the pages, there's this short passage. There are forms, practitioners, cognizable via the eyes, agreeable, pleasing, charming, endearing, fostering desire, enticing. If a practitioner relishes them, welcomes them, and remains fastened to them, One is said to be a practitioner fettered by forms, cognizable by the eye. One has gone over to Mara's camp. One has come under Mara's power. The evil one can do with one as he will. Right? And and then the same with all the other sense gates. So with the intellect, thinking mind, with the sight, sound, smell, taste, and touch. Same thing. If we find it agreeable, pleasing, charming, endearing, fostering desire, enticing. If one relishes them, welcomes them, remains fastened to them, one is said to be a monk fettered, a practitioner fettered by forms, by sounds, by sights, by smells and tastes, and by thoughts. One has gone over to Mara's camp. Right? We're an ordinary worldly human being living in cycles of samsara. We're in a sense world, setting in motion, the tendency to remain in sense experience. Now again, we might initially think, well, I'm okay with that. right? But remember that our experience in the sense world might be in this very narrow band. And there's no telling whether we're going to stay in that narrow band. Does anybody, I mean, this is real delusion, thinking that the easy, I mean, not everyone in this room has had an easy ride. But some of us have had a pretty easy ride. But it won't always be that way. And even though we can't prove that there are many existences, it's useful to stay open to that because it changes how we relate It's like we have much more incentive to get to the bottom of what's going on if we just hold out the possibility without 
saying it's true, that, like the Buddha says, we've been at this for an incalculable number of lifetimes, always while we're at it, thinking that this isn't so bad. And the question is, well, maybe it is. It's interesting that in the tradition, not knowing that we're suffering doesn't mean we're not suffering. And this is the thing. This is why people like that movie, The Matrix, because of that scene where the person wakes up. If you haven't seen the movie, you know, people are in a dream, living in a dream. And, uh, and then there's a little uh, part of the dream that's sort of a little thread of wisdom. And the, this little thread of wisdom says to itself, basically, do you really want to wake up? Are you sure you want to wake up? You sure you want to come out of the dream? And it's like, this is, I'm sorry, you can, we can stay in the dream, which is basically thinking that sense experience, sense realm, is ultimately meaningful. We can stay in it, but we can also, while in it, get interested in what it is. And this, is, this changes everything. When we start using some of the heart, some of the mind, to be to sort of have enough evenness of attention, enough balance of mind to study what it is to be a sense being, a central being, while doing the dance of sensuality, because we're, we're going to keep doing the dance of sensuality. We're going to keep, you know, when we're not harming others, if we can have a pleasant sense experience, there's nothing wrong with it. But the question is, are we paying attention to how that is while we live in a sense realm? Now, we really don't have much time. (laughs) Anybody have a wise thought to share with the group before we end tonight? A way to share something that is clear in your mind that might be useful for others? Yeah, please, Roger. This morning I I was uh, doing some work in Wisconsin and uh, so I was driving out there, and I had NPR on, and initially I was getting caught up in the, you know, the chatter, political stuff, and it was kind of provocative and kind of pulls you in. But with my daily sits, I notice, you know, more and more samadhi developing. So all of a sudden, I just noticed the landscape around me being really beautiful, and I could really see this split between the expansiveness and the chatter, you know. It just became obvious, and to the point I just shut it off, and I just let myself go into the expanse, you know. So just wanted to share that. Yeah, and that relates back to what I said earlier, because if you're doing a lot of practice, then the way the mind uh, represents non-attachment, like I use that word nimitta, so space is a nimitta. Right? It's a, it represents the mind not being attached. Right? So seeing space, literal space, like the landscape, right? that is a sort of, oh yeah, there's this reality of non-clinging. And it's available. Here, as a central being driving down the road, it's available. So you want to play with, you want to do it in the refined spaces of your set, but then it starts playing itself out in the world. Yeah, thanks. That's a nice way to end, Roger. So it is nine, so we need to end now. Let's just take a few wor- or a few seconds to let go of the words. Wishing you all good luck, myself included, good luck with our practice this week. If you want to read just one thing, you might go back a few emails, and it's also on our webpage, to the, uh, it's a pretty long chapter, you know, maybe 20 pages, but there's some great uh, discourses from the Buddha that he has excerpted into this chapter that I think will be very useful. So it's Mind Like Fire Unbound, it's chapter 3, 40 Cartloads of Timber. 
which is a famous simile that the Buddha used that he begins the chapter with. And I'll read a little bit from it next week too um, when we come back. And we'll have small groups next week. And I know Haya has an announcement about the upcoming retreat. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.